Acts chapter 7, begin reading in verse 44. If you remember, we've been in a series walking through Stephen's sermon in which he has been answering two charges. The two charges are blasphemy. He's committing blasphemy against the law of Moses, the law of God, and he's committing blasphemy against the temple of God or the place, even the holy city, Jerusalem. Committing blasphemy against these things, and he's responding to those two charges. And he's responded through really four historical eras. First, going to Abraham and trying to help them understand their misunderstanding, um, the Jewish audience's misunderstanding. So he went to Abraham, then he went to Joseph, then he went to Moses' era, and now he's going to the historical era of David and Solomon. And as we come to that historical era of David and Solomon, he's really narrowing his focus the next several verses to the charge that he's committing blasphemy against the temple of God and really against the holy city. So he's narrowing it to that charge. So look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 44. Acts chapter 7 and verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we pursue understanding what your prophet really in this sense, this evangelist, one of the seven, Stephen, preached as he surveyed the Old Testament history as he responded to these charges of blasphemy against the law and the temple. We pray that as we look at some of what he preached inspired by your Holy Spirit and what Luke inerrantly, infallibly, authoritatively wrote down for us by the breathing of your Spirit into And through him, we pray that as we look at this text together, we would understand that this is the very word of God. Pray that you would give us minds to understand what it is your spirit is saying to the church. That we would understand this text, that we would understand the purpose of the tabernacle and the place of the temple and the holy city and what it was all pointing to and, and how Stephen is trying to explain to Israel how they missed it, they misunderstood it. 
We pray that we would not. We know, Father, it is so easy for us to take the things that you give us to point to the truth about you and rather than see them as means pointing us to you, to turn them into ends through which we think we manipulate and control you to give us what we want. We know it is easy for us. It was certainly easy for Israel as well. We pray that you would help us to Therefore, to understand rightly your word and its fulfillment in your son, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I said that Stephen, over the last several weeks, has been walking through this passage, this sermon. Stephen is responding to two charges, blasphemy against the law of Moses, blasphemy against the temple. And he's responding to those two charges by walking Israel through her history, trying to explain to Israel as he stands before really the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, and the crowds trying to explain to them how they have misunderstood their own history. They've misunderstood what the Lord is doing in their history. And in today's passage, he specifically comes after how they've misunderstood the temple and really to some degree the holy city, this holy place how they've abused what God has given them, how they've taken the temple themselves and turned it into an idolatrous place. They've taken the holy city, the land, and made it into the end game, not understanding that it was a shadow pointing them forward to something greater. And he's coming at that, and he really narrows in on the story of David and Solomon. Now, he, he, what Stephen does is, in a matter of a sh- few short verses, he takes us from Moses. Here's the tabernacle of meeting, or the, uh, we call it the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tent of witness. All, those lang- all that language has to do with this tent. How we go from Moses having that in the wilderness, the people of Israel, from the wilderness to the fact, to the point where they get to the promised land, they're in the holy city, and he just fast forwards us in a few short verses all the way to David and Solomon and the building of the temple. And then even Isaiah, the prophet, his reflection on the temple and Israel's misunderstanding of it. So we, we move through that in just a few short verses as Stephen is trying to help the crowd understand that they're the ones who are getting the temple wrong. In other words, his defense, I think as Russell said a couple weeks ago, his defense of his own teaching becomes a prosecution of their teaching. He turns this entire accusation on its head and says, I'm not the one who's blaspheming the law in the temple. You are the ones blaspheming the law of the temple. See, the problem is, even for the later Judaizers, is the temptation of Israel was to make what happened with Moses the end game. And even when Jesus comes along, the Judaizers later want to make Jesus a servant in the house of Moses because they see the end game as being Moses. And they don't realize that what's taught to them with Moses with the tent of meeting is pointing forward, which David builds the temple out of, is pointing forward to something even greater than Moses. And that Moses is just a servant in the house of Jesus. And so he wants to come after this and prosecute them. And Stephen's argument is aimed at showing Israel that they've misunderstood the temple and have turned it into an idol. Thus, they're the ones blaspheming God. He's going to argue that you've made the temple into something it was never intended to be. And his argument's really going to move through, as he considers their history, through four misunderstandings they have 
if you will, or four truths he's going to point out to correct their misunderstandings of the temple. So that's what I want to move through. I just want to move through. That's what we're going to go through this morning. Four really truths that were given to correct the misunderstanding that Israel had about the temple. The misunderstandings that Israel had that were making them really into an idolatrous people. And so Stephen wants to correct those. So as we walk through their history a bit here, I want you to see these four truths. So here's the first one. And this, guys, I want to I brace you a little bit. I told Jason beforehand, you know, Charles Spurgeon talks about when you write a sermon, um, one of the things I've taught these guys is when you write a sermon, you want to build a foundation and walls because that's the doctrine and the exegesis, the, the walking through the passage. He says you want to build it with the foundation and the walls, but like, like a house. It's like building a house. Good foundation, good walls, sturdy, strong. You want it to be doctrinally sound and exegetically precise, and, and you want that in a sermon. But Spurgeon goes on to say you have to build windows into the house. Because you ever seen a house without windows? It's an ugly place, isn't it? you got to build windows in, and the windows give you a kind of mental relief, don't they? If you think about that, if you look at a building, if it's just all wall and foundation, there's no mental relief. And so Spurgeon says if you want to build a beautiful house and make a helpful sermon, you got to build in windows to give mental relief. Well, here's what I want to warn you about. I have failed to heed Spurgeon's warning this morning. There are very few, if any, windows. Sorry. You're going to see a lot of walls and, and foundation this morning, okay? Um, I apologize to you for that in advance. I should be a better preacher and do that, but it's just too much, and I'm going to have to keep you here two hours. If I'm going to build windows, it's going to be too long a day, okay? So just hang with me. Here's the first point. The tabernacle or tent of witness or meeting, here's the first point, was always a shadow of something greater. The tabernacle was always, always a shadow of something greater, I want you to hear that because it's so important to drive down into your mind. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was never the end game. It was never the final way God would dwell with and meet with his people. It was always pointing forward to something greater. It was always a shadow. Never the substance. Explain this to you before. When I stand outside... I cast a shadow, if there's sun, right? I cast a shadow, a larger shadow than others, but I cast a shadow. When you see my shadow, that isn't me. That's pointing to me, but that isn't me. That's just a shadow. I'm the substance or the reality. You follow? Okay? And the Old Testament tent of meeting or tabernacle was a shadow, not the substance. That's always the case. Look at Acts 7.44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Now here Stephen calls it the tent of witness. It's also, in other places, called the tent of meeting, where God met with them. The tent of witness really is language focusing on the fact that the Ten Commandments are kept under the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. The Ten Commandments witness to the covenant God has made with the people. And so that's one way to speak about it is the tent of witness. Another way to speak about it in the Old Testament is the tent of meeting, that God met with them there. Well, Stephen is dealing with two charges, right? That he's blaspheming the law of Moses and that he's blaspheming the dwelling place or the, the temple or tabernacle of God. And so Stephen picks up the language, the tent of witness, in the wilderness, pointing at the fact that both the law was there and God was present there, and he's kind of coming after both of these things subtly. 
Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. Now notice this phrase at the end of verse 44. That was the father who spoke, by the way, to Moses directed to make it. Now notice this at the end. According to the pattern that he had seen. So Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's given instructions on Mount Sinai to build this tabernacle, this tent of witness, this tent of meeting. He's given instructions on how to build it. And he's given, as, these, as God gives these instructions to Moses, he says that he's, Stephen qualifies this by saying that the instructions are, to build this are according to the pattern he, Moses, had seen. What pattern did he see? What pattern did he see? What's that about? Well, that, that language, according to the pattern he'd seen, comes from Exodus chapter 25. Now, if you've read your Bibles in a year, anybody tried to read through the Bible in a year? Probably all of you tried every year, right? You start January 1, and you start reading, and you're making great progress, and you're going along, and then you get to Exodus 25, and out come all the instructions for, for building the tabernacle, the tent of witness. And they go on, Exodus 25, Exodus 26, Exodus 27, Exodus 28, Exodus 29, Exodus 30, Exodus 31. Now I've gone two days, if I'm going three chapters a day, of just reading or more, of just reading about instructions for building the tabernacle. Then Israel sins, and we get kind of a nice narrative in there with the golden calf and, and their repentance and all that. And then after chapter 34, I come to chapter 35, and we're back to building the temple. Now we don't have instructions for building the, the temple we, or the tabernacle. We just have the actual construction. And when they do the construction, they go back through all the instructions showing you that they're actually fulfilling it. So chapter 35 and chapter 36 and chapter 37 and chapter 38, chapter 39 and chapter 40, and you're like, whew, I finished Exodus. Thank God I'm done with that tabernacle stuff. And then you get to Leviticus 1, and you just, oh, forget it. And you don't read again. Now there's a whole book on how to worship inside that tent of meeting. How do I even come into the tent of meeting? And here's all these instructions. It's, it's, you get bogged down. It's, it's, it's like when I go running. I start off, and it's great, and I'm like, oh, this feels good. And then somewhere along the line, maybe 100 yards out, <laughs> my body just says, wait a minute, what's this? And I, I stop, and I, I start barely moving along, and it turns from running to, well, it never was running. It was really jogging at best. And then it turns to some kind of slogging, right? Some kind of slow jogging. Anyway. And it's embarrassing, and so I stop. So, here's the thing. This can happen in our Bible reading because Exodus spends so much time on the details about the tent of witness, the tent of meeting, and then so much time in Leviticus on how to worship there. And, and we might wonder, what's this all about? But understand, this is at the center of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five-scrolled book. Right at the center is chapter after chapter after chapter on the tent of meeting and the procedures in building it, and then once it's built, how it was built, and then, or, and then basically you go into this, how do you even you know, come into the tent of meeting? How do you approach the tent of meeting? What is all that about clean and unclean laws and holiness? And you're reading all this, and you're thinking, I don't know what this is about, but I, I hope you at least get the effect that this is a major part of life for Israel. Major. You at least feel that effect. If you're the people of Israel growing up your whole life, spending that much time on instructions with regard to worship in the tabernacle, 
you would see it as a pretty pivotal part of your own faith, wouldn't you? And that's what happens with Israel. But to understand what is going on here with this tent of meeting, we need to understand the problem that arose in Israel in the Exodus. God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them out for a reason, so that he might dwell with him. So that he might dwell with them. And so they might worship him. Hear that? I brought you out so you'd dwell with me and you'd worship me. So look at Exodus chapter 29. Keep your hand in Acts 7 and look at Exodus chapter 29. I want you to see this language. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. If you're not very familiar with your Bible, go to the very front, go to the second book. Chapter 29, and, and look at verse um, 44. This is in the middle of the instructions on building the tent of meeting. I will consecrate, this is Yahweh speaking, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Now notice this, verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Now notice this, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, what's the purpose for it? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, God brought them out of Egypt that he might dwell among them. And they build the tent of meeting that he might dwell among them. But the people of Israel, like all people, are sinful. They cannot enter where God dwells without death ensuing. If you remember the story of the garden, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God dwells with them there. They sin, and they are kicked out of the garden. And I don't have time to go over the whole story. They're kicked out of the garden, and these cherubim are put there. That's the plural. There's two of them. One guarding each side of the entrance to God's dwelling place with a flashing sword flaming sword. And what's the flaming sword? It threatens death on anyone who tries to enter God's dwelling place. You cannot enter the presence of God as a sinful person without death falling upon you because God is holy. And so here's the thing. God intends to dwell with Israel, but Israel is a sinful people, and God cannot dwell with sinful people because he is a holy God, and he cannot dwell with sinful people unless death falls on them. And so the tent of meeting or the tent of witness becomes a kind of halfway house, if you will. God dwells with them in the tent of meeting or the tent of witness, the tabernacle, but he always dwells with them sort of outside of them, doesn't he? None of them live in the tent of meeting. The only a priest can go into the tent of meeting and he can only go to where God's Shekinah glory is in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's it. So even though God is dwelling with Israel in the tent of meeting, they're always still outside of his real dwelling, aren't they? It's a sort of halfway house. And God gave Moses instructions for building the tent of meeting to provide a place for Israel to meet with him, but they're still kept at a distance. The Lord will dwell with Israel, but they'll always be just outside of his 
glorious and holy presence. And what's interesting is if you look at how the tabernacle is built and where the various peoples of Israel are, the 12 tribes surround the tabernacle, and then the Gentiles are even outside of that, dwelling even further from Yahweh. The Lord will give a taste of his glory in the tent of witness. His glory will fill the holy of holies in the tabernacle, but even then, Israel may not enter this place. Even then, a priest must enter on their behalf and only after he's been purified of his own sins and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So God will manifest his glory in the tabernacle and will dwell with Israel there, but it's always a sort of halfway house, isn't it? It's not like Adam and Eve who are walking with God in the garden. But this tabernacle was never, did you hear this? The tabernacle was never meant to be understood as God's ultimate dwelling place. Never. The Lord of heaven and earth cannot be contained in a tent. Cannot be contained in a building. The tent was merely a pattern. Notice that language Stephen uses? It's also used in Exodus 25, 40. It was a pattern, a picture, a shadow. The tent was never intended to be the substance. That's what Stephen means when he says, according to the pattern he, Moses, had seen. He's quoting from Exodus 25, 40, where Moses is told to see that you make these things after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Stephen's picking up that language. In other words, while Moses was on Mount Sinai with the Lord, he was being shown a pattern. The tent of witness or meeting is patterned after something greater, and Moses knew that. Moses knew that. What Stephen is saying here, in other words, I guess what I'm driving at, is not a surprise to Moses. Now, Moses isn't in his direct audience. You understand that. But if Moses had been there, he wouldn't have been surprised by what Stephen's saying. He knew the tabernacle. Moses knew the tabernacle was pointing to something greater. It was a shadow and not the substance. So what's the substance? What's the substance? This same language, according to the pattern in Acts 7 and in Exodus 25, is picked up in Hebrews 8. So look at Hebrews 8. Now that's toward the other end of your Bible. right? If you were in Exodus, Hebrews 8 is toward the other end. Hebrews 8 and verse 1. He's just been talking about, by the way, that, that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ is a priest king. Adam in the garden was a priest king. The priests under, under Aaron were not priest kings. They were priests. King was a separate office. Melchizedek, however, whom Abraham runs into in Genesis, is a priest king. And he's saying, Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood, they're priests under Moses' covenant. They're temporary, but they're not priest kings. They're just priests. Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, and he, he goes into that and actually argues that Christ, as the priest king, is holy and doesn't have to offer atonement for his own sins before he walks into the tent of meeting, if you will unlike the Aaronic priests who have to do that. Christ doesn't have to. And he goes on, verse 1, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. See, he's a priest, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, meaning he's a king. A minister, a servant in the holy places. 
Now notice this language, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Hear the contrast? The tabernacle was a tent set up by man. Now God gave the instructions, but, but who built it? Men did. The true tent the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, now notice this, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, these are a, a pattern, a shadow of the heavenly things, the true tent of the Lord. Heaven, where Christ, our great high priest king, dwells and ever intercedes for us. So Moses was setting up a tent that was patterned after a shadow of the substance, and the substance is God's ultimate dwelling place, heaven, where our priest king Jesus serves to bring us near through a better covenant than was given through Moses, the new covenant that is made in Christ. Thus we can say the tent of witness or meeting was always a shadow of something greater. Hear that? Always a shadow of something greater. Second misunderstanding that really needs to be, that is being clarified by Stephen, or, or if you will, the second truth that Israel needs to understand. The tabernacle or tent of witness was always given for a sojourning people. Hear that? Second thing he's correcting. It was always given. He's saying this. The truth is the tabernacle or tent of witness was always given for a sojourning people, a pilgrim people. Look at Acts 7 and verse 44 again. Our fathers had the tent of witness where? In the wilderness. Is that home for them? Is that the promised land? No, but they have the tent of witness in the wilderness while they're sojourning, aren't they? As pilgrim people, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua. So they brought the tent of meeting into the land with Joshua, the promised land, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David. In other words, they had the tent of witness in the wilderness, and then they brought the tent of witness into the promised land with Joshua, and so it was until the days of David. But I want you to notice the emphasis. The tent was always a shadow of God's true dwelling, and it was given to a sojourning people. They didn't get the tent of witness once they got to the promised land. God didn't start dwelling with them in this pattern after heaven, this shadow, the tent of meeting, once they got to the promised land, as I think Russell said, it wasn't that God built some tabernacle in the promised land while Israel was outside and said, come over here and I'll dwell with you. He gave it to them outside the land. Israel had somehow begun to believe that God is contained in this temple building on this particular land. So they not only saw the tabernacle temple as more than a shadow, they also began to see the promised land, this holy place, as something more than a shadow. They somehow wrongly believed that God would dwell with them by virtue 
of them having the right building in the right locale. See, if I own the right piece of real estate, God will dwell with me. That somehow God can be maintained in a building or on a piece of land. They missed, they missed what Stephen's been laying out here, that Abraham had the Lord with him when? In a pagan land. Mesopotamia. That Joseph had the Lord with him when? In Egypt when he was sold into slavery. That Moses had the Lord with him when? In Midian after he'd run off. None of these places are the promised land. That Israel had the Lord with them when? In the wilderness, outside the land. And then they also had the Lord with them in the promised land. The Lord is present with his people, with those whom he has covenanted. And the tent of witness and the promised land, did you hear this, were only shadows. And it's important for you to catch. Did you hear what I just said? The physical city of Jerusalem, the promised land, the tent of witness or tabernacle, and what later becomes the temple were all shadows pointing forward to the substance. And that's important for you to catch. He wanted Israel to understand that he is always a God of sojourners or pilgrims. Precisely because, I want you to hear this, precisely because this sinful and fallen creation, I want, this is so important for you to grasp, this sinful and fallen creation can never be the ultimate home of the Lord nor his covenant people. Sinful fallen creation where sorrow and sin and death are. Where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Can never be, can never be God's ultimate dwelling place, nor can it ever be the ultimate home for God's people. Israel was to dwell in the promised land of those who, as those who understood that even in the promised land they were sojourners or pilgrims, for it was never intended to be God's ultimate dwelling place, nor the ultimate dwelling place of God's people. And Israel understood this. Now you might say, did Israel know this? Yes. The author of Hebrews tells us flat out that Israel understood this. Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but you can. I'm going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9. By faith, he, that being Abraham, went to live in the land of promise. Now how did he go to live there? As in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, the same, uh, with him of the same promise. For, now why, why? What was the basis on which he lived there as a foreigner? Well, he knew he wasn't going to be able to stay there long and he was going to be dragged off to Egypt and the people were going to be enslaved, right? That's why he lived there as a foreigner, because he knew he wouldn't actually stay there very long. Is that the answer the author of Hebrews gives us? No. The reason he gives us, the cause as to why he lived there as a foreigner, why? For he was looking forward to what? The city. Which one? That has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now look at verse 13. These all, speaking of many of the Old Testament saints, died in faith, not having received the things promised. See all these Old Testament promises? They never received them. Now they're saved looking forward to them. 
But all they ever got were shadows, promises, pictures pointing forward. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. See, they're looking forward. And having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, they went out from Israel. If they're thinking of that land, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they knew they were strangers and sojourners on the earth. That it was never about the promised land per se or the temple per se, that those were all pointing them forward to the heavenly city, their true homeland. God's people are always sojourners on this earth. Christians, we are referred to as sojourners, you know that? On this earth. This isn't our home. It can never be our ultimate home because God and God's covenant people can never dwell forever in a sinful, fallen, broken place. So we're always sojourners. Always looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. Always looking forward to the city which is heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. And Israel began to misunderstand that the promised land was always a shadow, always a type, and the substance was far greater. Thus the people of God are always sojourners until the city of God comes. Always sojourners until the city of God comes. Are we citizens of that city? Yes, we are citizens. Do we live in the reality of that city having come yet? No. Until then, we live as sojourners, citizens of another country, a better country. And Israel lost sight of that. They lost sight of that. Third, Misunderstanding, Stephen corrects, and really the third truth he wants them to know, the temple was never something God commanded to be built. Hear that? So, I mean, this is just something to stop and consider. The tent of witness God commanded them to build, he never commanded them to build the temple that they're saying Stephen is now blaspheming. You understand the brilliant stroke in this argument. You're claiming I'm blaspheming the temple. God never commanded us to build the temple in the first place. Look at verse 45 of Acts 7, and really the very end of it, if you will, in scholarly terms, verse 45c, right, okay? So it was until the days of David, who found favor. Now notice, David found favor in the sight of God. Notice, God was gracious to David, is the word there, favor. God showed him grace. And David asked, David asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. In other words, he's, he's wanting to say that, that David found favor with the Lord, the Lord showed him great grace, and David wanted to make a more glorious dwelling place for God than the tent of witness. He thought the tent of witness was insufficient. He wanted a more glorious place. He wanted to build a temple on the mountain in Jerusalem. So he asked to be able to do it. Now, there's a, there's a few, three, three quick facts you need to know about that. One, God never asked for a temple. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 
God says, you're going to build me a house of cedar? I don't need a house of cedar. I never asked you to do that. And that's verses 1 through 11. The Lord lays that out for David. David says, I want to build you a temple. That's, I don't need one. Second, the Lord tells David that Solomon will build the temple. In 2 Samuel 11 through 13, he says, David, all right, your family is going to build the temple, but it isn't going to be you. It's going to be your son Solomon. He's going to build the temple. He'll build it. And third thing you need to know is the Lord actually does commend David for his desire to build the temple. He commends him for it. Now the Lord says, I never asked you to do it, but I appreciate the fact that you want to build a nice temple for me. In fact, 1 Kings 8, 17. Now it was in the heart of David, this is Solomon speaking, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. What you need to understand is even when Solomon's promised he'll build the temple as the son of David, 2 Samuel 7 pitches us forward to the greater son of David, who would be the temple of the Lord. He would build the ultimate temple that Paul calls the church which is Christ's body. And we are all, First Peter says, living stones being built up in that temple. With all that said, what is the point Stephen is emphasizing here? He's saying God never asked for a temple. So for Israel to make everything hinge on this building in this land is to misunderstand what the Lord was ever doing with them. And David himself knew this about the temple. By the way, David knew this about the temple and the land. He knew they were types or shadows. What? How do I know that? He knew ultimately the land, the promised land, was just a shadow or a type. He knew that they were temporary shadows given to a sojourning people. Chase began to read this morning from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and I, and I want you to hear this because here's David praying in the assembly. They had they'd collected offerings for the temple. So David says, let's collect the offerings for the temple that Solomon will build. And he goes on to praise the Lord in the midst of this collection. And in verse 14, he says, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have, have we given you. In other words, who are we to offer anything to the Lord? Everything comes from the Lord anyway. You know, insert sermon here on offering. None of what you have belongs to you, so give it to us. Anyway, no, it's, no, that's not true. All right. Everything belongs to the Lord. That's what they're saying. Everything belongs to the Lord. So who are we to offer anything to you, really? And that's true, by the way. I will say this. Anytime you bring any offering before the Lord, whether it's your praise from your lips or it's your money or it's your service, what do you have to offer the Lord? You're an unworthy servant. Everything comes from him. Everything. For we are, verse 15, strangers before you and sojourners. Listen to David's language. In the promised land, we're strangers and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. 
O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of heart, my heart, I freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. Look, the Lord never commanded a temple to be built. The Lord does not need a temple, nor can he be contained in a temple. David knew that. He knew that. He knew they were sojourners. The Lord couldn't be contained in this building. He created all the stuff they made the building out of. How could he be contained in it? It was always pointing forward. This leads to the fourth point, our final point, our final truth. The Lord does not dwell in tabernacles and temples. Hear that? The Lord does not dwell in tabernacles and temples. Now you're going to say, wait a minute. And I'm, I'm glad you're wondering. I hope you have a little cognitive dissonance right now when I say this. The Lord does not dwell in tabernacles or temples. Let's look at Acts 7 and verse 48. Yet the Most High, here's Stephen, the Most High, speaking of the God who is over all, does not dwell in houses made by hands. Tabernacles or temples. He doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, now he quotes from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne. This is the Lord speaking. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, the point is not, I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. The point is not that the Lord never dwelled in any sense in the temple of meeting or the tabernacle. Tent of meeting, sorry, the tabernacle. He dwelt there in a sense, but not in the ultimate sense. What he's saying is the Lord can't be contained by those things. You know, the Lord dwells in his people, but he's certainly not contained by us. You understand the crossover, right? Jesus comes and says, that the Lord isn't going to meet with you on this mountain anymore or in this temple. He's going to meet with those who worship in spirit and in truth. For that's what the Father seeks, is worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus goes on later to tell the disciples in John 14 that not only would the Holy Spirit indwell them, but the Father and the Son would make their home in the believer. Now imagine if you're an Israelite. God has always made his home outside of you in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. He's always been too great to be contained if you really understand the Old Testament. And now Jesus is telling you he's going to make his home in you. In a sense, in a sense, Jesus is not teaching them pantheism. He isn't saying you all become God. He's saying that God dwells with you. He draws nears to you. But you don't contain him all. You follow me on that? You aren't him. You get that? Important to know. 
He isn't contained in the temple or the building either. How could he be? The Lord can't be contained in a human building. And the ultimate sense, and Stephen quotes Isaiah 66 to prove that. And by the way, in quoting Isaiah, Stephen is showing Israel that what he's teaching isn't something new. Stephen isn't making this up. He's getting it from Isaiah, one of their prophets, whom he later goes on to say, you kill all the prophets, and he's mostly speaking about Isaiah. The Old Testament prophets taught that the Lord does not dwell in a building. He is the Lord. Israel had committed a great error. They had begun to believe that they could contain and control God. They had begun to believe that the works of their hands could satisfy and control God. You see, they had become like pagans. Stephen actually goes on to accuse Israel of becoming pagan. That's a harsh criticism. I'll show you in a second. They become like pagans, but what do I mean like pagans? Pagan religions all believe that the gods need them in some way. See, the gods have created us because they have needs, and the gods all need us in some way. And they can control and manipulate those gods if they give the, the gods the things the gods need through the right rituals, the right religious ceremonies, um, the right behaviors. They give the gods the things they need, and then the gods will in turn give them what? What they need and want, what they desire. So it becomes this kind of exchange. The gods need me, so I do the things they need, and then they give me the things I want. And Israel had become like the pagan nations. Incidentally, I would argue that the prosperity gospel, wealth you know, and health gospel, you rub God's belly just right and he gives you all that you want, is paganism. It's pure, syncretized, if you will, with Christianity, paganism. And much of what we conceive of as Christianity today is paganism. We think that we ascend to God through our faith, give him what he wants through our works, satisfy him in some way, and then he gives us the marriage we want and the children we want and the, and, and the job we want and the general mood that we want. If we just can assuage God through the right religious ceremonies, through the right practices, through ginning up enough sincere faith, through a proper sense of obedience, then I can give God to give me the things I want. If I can just discipline my children perfectly, then they'll be the kind of children I want. If I can just love my wife perfectly, then I'll have the kind of wife I want. And if I can just, if I can just do my job and work with all diligence to the glory of God perfectly, then I can have the kind of outcome at work I want. And eventually, I can be happy. If I just believe truthfully, then I'll finally be happy, and my mood will never get depressed. You see, I've taken the means God has given to point me to himself, and I've turned him into a pagan deity whom I really am manipulating through those means to get what I want. And they believe they could contain the Lord in a building and get what they want from him through their religious rites. And that's why Stephen can describe them in Acts 7.51 when he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by uncircumcised in heart and ears? They're like pagans. 
the people of God had circumcised hearts and ears. It's only the people outside God who had uncircumcised hearts and ears. They were sinful, obstinate, hard-hearted, just like pagans. They believed their temple and their land was their guarantee that they had the Lord firmly in their grasp. Listen, folks. If any, if any religious teacher comes to you trying to use prayer or faith or obedience or principles for living or Jesus to say that you can grasp those things and by grasping them, you have grasped and now controlled God so that you get the outcomes that you want. That person has taken Christianity and turned it into paganism. They've taught you idolatry, not Christianity. It's precisely what Israel did with the temple and with their worship services. They took the holy worship of Yahweh and turned it into paganism. We now control him. We contain him. He's ours. We own him. We can get the outcomes we want from him. We just manipulate him just the right way with the right amount of sincere faith and obedience and religious ritual. And he's ours for the taking. He does our bidding. And when he isn't doing what I want, and my wife isn't submitting the way I'd like her to, my husband isn't loving me sacrificially, servant heartily the way I'd like him to, my children aren't obeying the way I'd like them to, when my boss isn't seeing my work, all my hard work, and, and saying, well done, good and faithful employee like I'd like him to, give me the raise I've always hoped for, right? When my mood just won't seem to cooperate, though I have no real reason to feel down, I just feel down, my tendency in those situations is to wonder, what did I not do to manipulate God to give me the things I wanted? What ways did I fail to grasp hold of the things he's given so that I can shake out of him what he needs to give me for my happiness? That's our tendency. It's a pagan tendency. In fact, Jeremiah rebukes this pagan tendency among Israel. I want you to hear this in Jeremiah chapter 7. I'll try to wrap up right after this. In verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And I want you to hear this because it's devastating to the people of Israel. And it ought to be devastating to us. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. In other words, you're entering the gates of the city and you're coming into the temple to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, don't think you can use this building to manipulate God. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, and he goes on to list all these things, but go down to verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. If I just have enough faith, God will give me what I want. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Will you live however you want to please yourself and then stand before the Lord and say, I'm delivered? Only to go on committing all those abominations? Look what he says. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers, a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus picks that up later, doesn't he? You see, Israel believed they had a handle on God and could get what they wanted from him because they had the right piece of real estate and the right rituals, and they missed the point. All of this was given to them because they were a sinful people, a people who needed a Savior, a people who needed a Deliverer, a people who needed new hearts, a people who needed repentance and forgiveness of sins, a people who needed the temple or the tent of meeting because they needed the Lord to graciously condescend to them. The Christian story is not a story about a pagan deity who provides ways for man to ascend to him. It isn't a story about a God who says, you can reach me if you just use the right or appropriate religious means. Or you can reach me if you just practice the right set of moral behaviors. Or you can ascend to where I am if you just think the right set of ideas or thoughts. The Christian story is about the holy God who, motivated by his own perfect love for us, graciously condescends to us, wretched, unworthy sinners, and saves us. The temple was never meant to tell Israel that they had God firmly in hand. It was meant to tell Israel that the Lord graciously condescended to dwell with them. The temple was a signpost, sorry, pointing to their need for the Lord to graciously forgive them and condescend to them. The temple should have engendered in them humble repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's why Isaiah in Isaiah 66 goes on to say, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the Lord speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But who is humble and contrite in spirit? Who trembles at God's word? This land and this temple were just shadows pointing them to a greater reality. This land and this temple and their rituals in that temple were given to help them see their need for something greater. The Lord did not need any of these shadows. Do you understand that? He didn't need to save any of us. Israel needed these shadows to point them to the substance. And sovereign grace, the New Testament screams at us over and over again that the substance is Jesus Christ. God's own Son graciously condescended in full humanity for our salvation. That is why He is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's why He's named Jesus, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. God's own Son graciously condescended in full humanity for our salvation, and He is humble and lowly of heart. He trembles at God's Word. He is the one who fulfills 
the law and the prophets. He is the great high priest in heaven who ever intercedes for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is our Savior, and his name is Jesus. And all who look to him are sojourners, now awaiting that great day when he returns and brings the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the temple of God, the city whose architect and builder is God. Listen to how John says this. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This is the hope that Christmas gives, isn't it? This is the hope that Israel missed. This is the hope we pray the Spirit of the Lord drives deeply into your own hearts so that you don't miss it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be powerfully at work in us. The temple of God, your church united to your Son, the Lamb, Himself, the one who tabernacled with us. Father, we pray that we would not miss, we would not miss the truth of the temple throughout Scripture, the tabernacle that always pointed us to Jesus. And the new city the new heavens and new earth will he, which he brings where you are the temple and the light and there is no more sorrow or suffering or sickness or death and there is no darkness there. Father, cause us to be thankful by your Spirit that you have lovingly in the person of your Son condescended to us that that you sent him to us. That you sent your spirit to unite us to him so that we might dwell with you. 
that we don't use any of these means you've given us, whether Bible reading or prayer or offering or the Lord's Supper or singing or, or keeping your law as ways that we think somehow we grasp hold of you and shake out of you what, you, what we want from you or think we need from you, but that we see, Father, that, that these are all means that are pointing us again and again and again to the fact that we don't have to ascend to you because you have condescended to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, your Son, the one who came so that we might have life, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, our Savior. Father, for those who don't know you, who are not looking to your Son, Jesus, in faith, we pray that you would cause them to turn to him and so trust him and know he is their hope. Father, for those of us here who so often begin to let our hearts and minds skew off into using you like some kind of pagan God, Father, I pray that you would humble us, that we'd realize that faith is not something virtuous, it's not something we gin up in ourselves, but it's the gracious gift of God through which we rest in your son Jesus, which we lean upon him and trust him and know that he is our hope, our righteousness, our justification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.